title of the sermon today is called The Power of Perspective. I want you to keep that on your head. I asked my daughter, who's sitting here today, I said, what do you think that word perspective means? She gave me a good, clean definition of it. I want you to keep this in it. It's how you see things. Just stay right there. It's how you see things. We live in a God got a plan for me generation. We live in a generation where God got a plan for me. I, 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 I'm not saying God doesn't have a plan for you. But we live in a generation where that's what people focus on. What's God's plan for my life? The most common question asked by most Christians is, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? What's God's plan for my life? Not necessarily wrong with the question. It's just a little bit out of priority. Christian authors have caught on to this perplexing question. Christian authors have. Let me give you some titles of some books now out that are bestsellers. It's your best life now. Seven steps to living at your full potential. It's your time. Activate your faith, achieve your dream, and increase in God's favor. Let me touch on just a little bit of that. Anytime you see a book that says activate your faith, you ought to burn it on the spot. (laughs) Because, watch this here, activation implies that the Holy Spirit is a power or influence, not a person. Understand that? And if you're going to say he's a power or an influence, you just snuck over into heresy now, and you might as well go be a Jehovah Witness. He's not somebody you activate. He's somebody you intimately get to know. Your best life now. The first title. Do y'all hear that thing? Your best life now. That's directly opposite from the text that says, set your heart on things above, not below. This book is saying, your best life now. God didn't want you to have your best life now. That's why he says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, ye may be also. He didn't expect you to come here and get comfortable. We're just on a journey. We're pilgrims walking through. Throw that book in the garbage can. Becoming a better you. Reposition yourself. Seven spiritual laws of success. I want you to notice something. Most books have seven, five, or three steps. How could all of them be right? How could all of them be right? Seven laws to your spiritual success. Y'all seen them at the bookstore before. Maybe you even have some on your bookshelf. The only reason I say buy them is so you understand what Satan is teaching. That's the only reason I look at that stuff and watch the programs I do. I want to know what's out there. I have to educate myself on the current doctrine that's going out there so I know how to refute it. It is not for the purpose of getting fed spiritually. Searching for your purpose is not necessarily sinful. It is just not a priority. There are things that are more important. There are things that are more important. Satan has put a church. He's, he, he's, he's snuck in. The Bible says we ought not be ignorant of his scheme. He snuck in and he's just tweaked the gospel. Let me show you. It ain't that obvious. It's just a little tweak. What he's done is this. The same lie he told Eve, you'll be like God. He didn't say she would be better. He didn't say she would be above. Just like him. In other words, God sits high and lifted up. I just want to get you a throne next to him. Understand that? And so now the church has moved from a theocentric gospel to an egocentric church. Every song is about he's an on-time God. God is an on-time God. Praise the Lord. But once again, that's about what God does for you, right? But there's few songs out that says, great is our faithfulness, O Lord, or holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
See, the only way you can understand that God is an on-time God if you understand he's holy, holy, holy first. Every scripture text that you read about God's benefits and gifts to him must be read through the eyes of a theocentric gospel. That means God is sovereign, in control, and is his show. And now you can understand the benefits of all things work together for good. Why do they work together for good? Because we serve a good God, and he's in control, and he's controlling your life. But if you start at he's good all the time, you get so where you think God runs his show according to your plan. That's exactly what happened. And Satan has got us believing that God sits, well, watch this here. In our churches, God is a consultant. He's not the king of kings. He's a consultant. Now, what do you hire a consultant for? You got your own business. You just need their guidance and help sometime. That's the God we serve now. That's the God we serve. He's a consultant in our churches. We, 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 we throw ideas off of him. We, we, we call him when we need him. We don't call a consultant and we don't need him because you got to pay him every time they show up. You, you, you just reach out to him when he's there. God, you there still? I may need you on this one. No, no, no. We got to change you from a consultant to the almighty king of kings and lord of lords. That's the only way we can worship him in spirit and in truth. But Paul had it right as we move through this scripture. Purpose, priority, and perspective are not found in steps and formulas. They reside in a relationship with the author of the narrative. It is his story. It is his story. I'll read that again. Purpose, priority, perspective are not found in steps and formulas, but reside in relationship with the author of the narrative. It is his story. Now let's go to Philippians 3. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8. And the word says this. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish so that I might gain Christ. Skip down to 10. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. First, first point, church, you may be seated. Thank you for uh, respecting the word of God. I should have told you that myself. The first point is, now, now, at the end of this service, at the end of this service, everybody in here is going to know the will of God for their life. Everybody is going to, we're going to be all on the same page. By the end of this sermon, everybody will know the will of God for their, ain't that the question we all want to know sometime? We all going to know the will of God. Let me give you the first point. I want to know him intimately. Verses 7 through 8. Verses 7 through 8. But you got to, but, but for me to jump into this text, I got to pick up some background from previous verses. In verse 4, Paul tells there's a rich upper class of circumcised Jews called Judaizers. He says in verse 3, Christians put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is about to theologically destroy a whole group of false believers who found their significance in self-esteem, ethnicity, religious training, education, and wealth. This college day, so we're going to stay here. The Judaizers, right? were those who were circumcised and were trying to push circumcision into the New Testament church. You got to understand this, though. These were the Jews that when Israel was allowed to go back to their homeland twice under Nebuchadnezzar and under Artaxerxes, they didn't go back. You got to ask yourself, why didn't they go back? Why? Because when they got enslaved by Persia, Syria, and all these nations, they got comfortable in them lands. They became landowners. 
they started to rise up. They learned the Greek culture. You understand what I mean? So they rose up in this and see now they're trying to mix Greek culture with biblical doctrine, right? And now they're trying to push that in the church. They were rich, kind of like what we call now the black middle class, the, the educated black, everybody trying to get there. We were trying to get there. I got to get my master so I can get in this club and that club and this country club. I want to be, edu- I want people to see me and see an educated black man. You understand what I'm saying? Same thing back then. This was the Judaizers trying to force that into the church. We're rich. We're elite. We didn't go back to Israel. We stayed in these countries, understood the lifestyle, got educated in the secular system, and now we benefit from it. We landowners. Y'all should look at us as an example. Y'all should do what we do. Now look at Paul here. I love Paul. Paul going to hit you. Verse 4 through 6. Paul said, well, let me tell you something about my resume. Paul goes, I want you to hear my resume. What did he say? I was circumcised the eighth day. That is significant. These Jews were not circumcised until 13 years old because they were mutts. They had mixed in and intermingled with us pagan nations. So they didn't get circumcised until they was 13. Gentile converts didn't get circumcised until they was mature. Paul said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That let you know I'm a pure Jew, no mixing at all. You understand what I'm saying? So you, you, you thought you had some, I'm pure Jew. You understand? Not only that, my parents did it on the eighth day, so they let you know they were obedient to the law. So I come from good lineage, and I ain't got no mixture in my blood. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, my goodness. Of the tribe of Benjamin. First king of Israel, Saul, Benjamite. The only trial that stuck by David when Absalom acted the fool, Benjamite. The only trial that combined with Judah to reconstitute Israel, Benjamite. Paul said, that's my tribe. Then he says this, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew. I don't study the Old Testament in Greek. I study in Aramaic and Hebrew. You understand what that means? I study it in this original language, not in some Hellenized version of it. I know the word of God. Paul would have been known four languages, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Four languages. I know them all. Now watch this, watch this here. As to zeal, he said, as my job description I lit the church up, lit it up, because they was coming against what I thought was the truth. So I was not just one of them lazy people get a degree. I got a degree and I worked. Then he says this, as to righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless without charge. You understand what that means when a man say he blameless? See, when we studied the Ten Commandments, we studied the Ten Commandments. There was not Ten Commandments. There was 613 commandments. The Exodus Ten Commandments was like a table of contents. That was just showing you all the laws in Leviticus. When you want to know the law, don't read Exodus 20. Read the whole book of Leviticus. The whole book. Then you understand that you can commit sins that are not spelled out in 10, in them 10 commandments. You got sins all in Leviticus that you're doing. Paul said, when you look at that law and you look at my life, blameless. I followed all the food laws. I watched all my utensils. I didn't eat no ribs, I didn't eat no pork, no bacon, I never slipped, blameless. Now you're asking this, do anybody have a resume like me? Do any of y'all got a resume like me? As you can see, Paul handled all his bases. He was on point, what we were saying. He had no holes in his game. His resume was tight. He had the PhD, he met all the requirements of that. But what did he say in verse 7? Y'all look at this, I want you to see it on paper. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss 
for the sake of Christ. Whatever things that were to my advantage, I've lost all their significance against my new purpose of pursuing the master. Paul is using accounting terms to help elucidate a very mathematical equation. Everything that I had profited in my bank account when I came to Christ, my account went from $20 million to negative five. Everything that I had rested my hope on, everything that I had leaned on, man, I got a PhD, I should be good. I got a master's, I should be good. I'm going to get a job. If you're a Christian and you get a master's and God say you ain't going to get no job, you can apply 500 places and you ain't going to have no job. God opens doors for the saint. Unless you get that jacked up, you will sit at home living with your mama at 30 years old wondering why you ain't got no money in the bank. You will wonder that. Paul said, all of that gain, look at my bank account. It went from 20 million to nothing as soon as I came to know Christ. All the things I rested my hope in was nothing. It counted that loss. Look at this accounting term. Everybody understands a little bit of accounting term. If you got more coming in than your doc got coming out, your account's going to be negative. You, you see what I'm saying? So, so Paul said, I had a lot I built up over here. I had messed up. In other words, Paul saying this, if anybody could have earned their way to heaven, Paul said, it would have been me. If there's one person who could have earned their way to heaven, hey, all of us going to shut them, put our hand over our mouth. You got to give it to Paul. But he said, I thought I had it. I thought I figured it out. But when I met Christ in Damascus, when I met the Savior, I realized everything I had rested my hope in was worth nothing. Now, let me say this. Paul is not against formal education. Paul is not against college day, what we have it now. What he's saying is, in comparison to Christ... In comparison to knowing Christ, it's worthless. It's worthless. In comparison to knowing Christ, my relationship to my wife, worthless. And every one of my kids. He's not saying that this relationship is not important. He's making a comparison to that against knowing Christ. That's all. I'm not against getting a master's degree. Honey, if you got the money and, and boy, you got the money, go do it. If you don't got the money, do it anyway. God will provide. What I'm saying is don't rest your hope in your master's degree. Don't rest your hope in your abilities to talk. Don't rest your hope in all them things because you're going to find out in the end they ain't going to be there for you when you need them. Verse 8. A. Watch this at the beginning of 8A. Paul says this. More than that, I get hung up on phrases. I get hung up. More than that, more than that what? They let me know that Paul about to go a little deeper and be more specific. He about to go just a touch deeper. I don't want to just put no general teaching out there. Let me tell you what really drives me. Let me tell you what that. They says more than that, the surpassing value. Look at verse, uh, verse 8a. We right there. It says more than that, I count all things lost in the view of the surpassing value value. Stay right there, surpassing. That's a verb. It means above or over. He said, I count all things loss for the view of the surpassing. Some of y'all got infinite of the infinite value. And now you got to say, what are you about to say now? Infinite value of what? Surpassing value of what? What do he say next? Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He said everything. See, it's, he said it's something greater than education. There's something greater than your marriage to your wife. There's something greater than church activity. There's something greater than the choir. There's something greater than all that. And what's greater than all that? The surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus. Now we got to deal with that word knowing. 
We got to deal with that word knowing. Knowing got two aspects of it in the New Testament Bible. Knowing means knowing facts about somebody. And it also means intimate knowledge of somebody. And Paul in this text is saying, I want both of those. I want to know facts about Jesus. And I want to be in close relationship with Jesus. I want to know that Jesus was the one who in the beginning said, let there be light. And there was light. I want to know it was Jesus in the Garden of Eden who showed up with the grace of God and said, where you at, Adam? I want to know about the God when Moses said, I want to see your glory. He said, Mo, you can't see me face to face. I'm going to hide you in the cliff, put my hand over it, and you get to see my back. That's the pre-incarnate Christ. That's, that's Jesus in the Old Testament. Paul said, I want to know that. I want to know that was the one that was born in 3 AD, grew up, died, healed the sick, walked on water, died for our sins, rose again. I want to know that about him. But I also want to know him intimately. It's one thing to know somebody and facts about somebody. It's a whole different animal to say, I want to be in relationship with you. Anybody ever met Obama in here? Barack Obama? Anybody met him personally? Fellowship with him, ate a meal with him. Anybody know where he went to college at? Come on, y'all, help me. He went to Harvard. That's a fact about Obama. Anybody know where he was born at? Hawaii. But do y'all know him? You don't know him. You don't know him. See, in this scripture text, Paul is talking about, you need to know facts about Jesus. Now, this perplexes me. I'm going to divest for two seconds. And I ain't hating on this, so don't get me wrong. My mama was a Delta, and my brother was an Alpha. But I can't understand how sorority and fraternity people know their whole history from 1802 can tell you who originated, where it was, what they prayed about when they originated it. You can't get them to answer, where was Jesus born at? Nazareth or Bethlehem? I... So what did that tell me? You know more about Alpha than you do about the Alpha and Omega. That's a problem. That's a problem. Ain't hating on your little group in the sorority and fraternity. They do good things. I'm not hating on no club. But Paul is talking about, I want to know him. I want to get to know him. I want to fall in love with him. I want to know about him. I want to know his heart. I want to know his will. I want to know what makes him, pleases him. I want to know what displeases him. I want to know all those things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Please don't tell me you're serious about God and you don't want to know him. Please don't tell me that. I can say what I want because I might not be back again. So. Kenneth Wee said it best, a Greek scholar. He said, the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, does not refer to the knowledge which the Lord Jesus possesses, but the knowledge of the Lord Jesus which Paul gained through experience of intimate companionship and communion with him. Paul came to know his heart, his will, as one comes to know another person. The distinctive Greek word for knowledge used here leads us to this interpretation. Paul came, and his purpose came from his passion. When Paul began to chase Jesus, when Paul began to fall in love with Jesus, Jesus began to reveal himself to Paul so that whatever Paul had planned became, whatever Paul had planned became secondary to what Jesus had for him. You see what I'm saying? The more Paul chased the master, the more the master revealed himself to him. And as the master revealed himself to him, Paul's plan became secondary, the master's plan became primary. 
It's very simple. It's very simple. A couple years ago, when I say couple, it was when I was about 20. I saw my little sweetie over there, my wife, in the student union. And I eased up on her. She had her little bill in her hand. She's about to pay her little gas bill. And I told her, you marry me, you ain't going to have to worry about that no more. Now, I don't know what I was saying because we still pay gas. But that worked for her. We started to talk on the phone. Y'all remember that when you met your significant other? You on the phone 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I ain't no phone talker either. We were just fellowshipping, you know, just having no good conversation. When I got out of class, I called. It's for cell phones now. I got out of class, I called her again. We talked again. What you doing? Same thing I was doing five minutes ago. <laughs> you see, see, what, see what I'm saying? But see, I had my plans that I was going to do before I met her. But as I got to know her, my plans started to encompass a relationship with her. You see what I'm saying? They started to encompass a relationship with her. So as I draw closer to her, my plans changed. My pursuits changed. The things that I thought was important changed. God gave me perspective on what I was chasing against what it means now to have a wife. In the same way, when you want to know the will of God, you're not going to get that sitting like this. You're not going to get that. You're wasting your time. You'll be there 20 years still waiting. I'm just, I'm going to wait till I get the will of God before I move on something. No, you don't wait till you get the will of God. You chase the Savior. You begin to serve in the local body. And as you do that, God will begin to reveal himself to you. This is not a step plan. It's not a formula. Don't read no book tell you, do this next, do this next, do this next. God is not a treasure map. He's not a treasure map where you unlock him and all that kind of stuff. He's a person and a person you intimately know. And as you get to know them, they open their heart to you. This is the biblical principle. Let me give it to you. It's a Hebrew idiom. Don't cast your pearl before swine. You know what that idiom means? It means God is basically telling you, don't give your preciousness or, or your heart to somebody who's immature or undeserved. So if God is telling you not to do that with other people, why would you think God would do that with you? Why would he do that to you? If you ain't going to produce, if you're not going to walk in obedience, if you're not going to take some steps of faith, why would God reveal you one thing? Let alone what time it is. That's all he's going to tell you. He's not going to reveal his heart to you. He's not going to give his heart to you until you begin to walk by faith. He's not going to do it. So don't waste your time waiting on it. God said, let let me prove this. Let me prove this. I know this ain't a problem here. It's a godly church. But all the churches I've been to, I say it's about 175 in here right now, 210. Right. All the churches I've been to, Wednesday night Bible study, 20. 22 tops, Sunday school, 30, business meeting, five. (laughs) Although they want to have an opinion about the direction of the church, they have the loudest mouth, but they don't show up at the business meeting to make their presence, biblical presence felt. Notice I said biblical presence. We don't need no foolishness at the business meeting. But how is it that 210 come on Sunday? But 25 show up for Wednesday night Bible study. Now, it's either two things. You don't know what time it is. 
and in the and in the in the and in the technological age, you really can't use that no more. Because it's on the billboard, on the website, and as we like to say, it's in the church program. So you can't use that. Let's throw that out there then. Oh, I'm busy. But then you go on Facebook and post, I can't wait to get ready for my show tonight at 6.30. You got time for scandal. You got time for Real House of Atlanta. You got time for Home and Garden. But you ain't got time to walk your behind up in this church for Wednesday night Bible study. Don't tell me you want to know God if you don't show up at what? Just admit, I ain't serious. Don't front. God know it already. Don't front. If you ain't going to come to Bible study and you have no desire to come up here and hear the word of God, don't front about it. Just tell the Lord, I do not have a desire. Let me give you two reasons for that. Listen to me clearly. I'm going to give you two reasons. Here's one reason. You ain't saved. You ain't saved. And I'm going to tell you why I plan. Because I know when the Holy Spirit comes in you, he brings the desire to come to Bible study. The desire, the desire to learn about Christ doesn't come from myself. Uh, doesn't come from myself. It comes from the Spirit of God. No man who wills or runs, but it's the Spirit of God who draws men into the church. So if you don't have a desire to, be, to learn about God, a desire to come to Bible study, a desire to go to VBS, a desire to get deeper in your relationship with God, it's because you're not saved. It could be this, though. It could be that you are saved, but you got some idols. You got some idols. Now, I done did just a little touch of counseling in this area already with married folk. I ain't going to make it too nasty. I'll make it to the surface. When I get a married couple in there, and the, the, the woman says... We, we, we've been struggling intimately, and it ain't happening in months. My next question to the husband is, are you cheating? Because men don't naturally shut down. His affection is someplace else. It's either in the TV or another person. Almost 98% of the time. Because intimacy is broken by adultery and idolatry. His heart is someplace else. So when you look at this scripture, I want to know God. And you're like, I really don't have a desire to know God. It's either you ain't saved or you got some idols that you need to cut off. Cut them off. Because they will always come between you and Christ. Just look at the Old Testament. Every time God would bring the Israelites back home, idols would come, separation again separation again. It was like a, a clock, or like a, a pattern, like a treadmill. God bring them back, they be on point, idols come back, they break relationship with God. Idols break intimacy with Christ. They take the taste of Christ out of your mouth in so much that you can't even stay off this boy for five minutes in Sunday service. I'm checking my time right now. It's the same thing it was two minutes ago. You got to take Facebook during church. I see people with somebody all heads down now. Nine times out of the ten, you looking down at your phone right now. I ain't offended about that, but don't front with God and just admit, I'm struggling with that, Lord. I don't have that desire to know you and the power of your resurrection. That's God's will for us, first point. Let me move. Let me move. To know him. I want to know him. I don't want to know about him. I want to know more than facts about him. I want Jesus to be in loving relationship with me. And remember, if it's a problem in the relationship, it's never his fault. It's never his fault. It is always on our end. Because Jesus has never divorced any one of us. 
Once he come into a loving relationship with you, he is always there steady. He is always there willing to forgive. He's always there saying, come on, baby. Come on. Come on, baby. Get up off your leg. Even now, if you know you've been turning your back on Jesus, if you repent in your seat right now, he'll be right there with you. Let's get married. Let's stay married. Let's make this thing happen. He never turns his back on anybody. Paul ain't done yet, though. Paul ain't done yet. He says this in verse 10. Let's go on to 10, y'all. That I may know him. Now you see that conjunction right there, and, right? That lets you know everything after this is connected. I'm going to skip over the power of a resurrection. He wants to know him and the power of his suffering and the fellowship of his suffering. Paul's second point. I want to know him is the first point. The next point, I want to suffer and die with him. I want to suffer and die with him. Paul may be seeming to talk fatalistically. Paul was not talking about suicide or living reckless. Paul was essentially saying that in order for me to be conformed to Jesus' image, it must come through the crucible of fire. That's what he's saying. Paul is not saying, Lord, I want you to kill my kids just so I can prove my faith or I'm on my family. Uh, he's not, he's not a, some people are gluttons for, for, for just, I, I want to go through this and prove God. Paul is not saying that. Paul is saying, look, if, if, if suffering is what it take for me to look more like Christ, I want to suffer for him. Now watch this word he used. He used the word fellowship. Fellowship. That means joint participation in the Greek. But for us, what does it mean? Fish, <laughs> chicken, Super Bowl party, women's fellowship. Now, when I think women's fellowship, I ain't hating on y'all. I think it's going to be a little devotional, but then y'all going to talk, maybe do some nails, maybe do manicures, maybe talk about, now hold up. Fellowship is that. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But we only use it in that sense, right? That's the only way we use it. When we think fellowship, it is always we're going to get together and have a good old time, right? But in the Bible, fellowship is not just used to talk about nails, fish, Super Bowl parties. That word fellowship is used to joint participation. You ain't never heard in our sermon where somebody actually saying, we want to suffer and join in fellowship with Christ because people will be running out the church. Oh, I don't want that kind of fellowship. Paul is asking to suffer and die with Christ. I want to join in that relationship that Christ had with suffering. Now look at Hebrews 5. Don't go there in the interest of time. I'll read it for you. Hebrews 5 says this. Although he was the son, Jesus, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now that should stick out to you first. First, why would God need to learn anything? Why, why would he need to learn anything? He doesn't experience things sequentially one day after the other like we do. He sees all things as they are. He's eternal. But when Jesus put on human flesh, he went through the same maturation process that you do. And if suffering was critical in Jesus' life to shape and mold him, how would you escape that? How would you escape suffering? How would you escape bad days? How would you escape times of tribulation and trial? If God used that to shape Jesus, who's the master, how much more is he going to use it for you? He says this, he says, that you suffer, that I suffer. But Paul said, I want to join with you as you suffer for the cause of Christ. I want to join that process. That's a tough prayer, y'all. That's a tough prayer. I ain't going to lie to you. I'm not there yet. Some days I am, some days I ain't. But, 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 the, but the, for him to say, Jesus, I watched what you did. You got to imagine, Jesus. He, Paul knew the story. Paul saw Jesus on the cross. 
I'm not sawing, but he knew the story. Paul was a little boy then, probably. He knew the story about the man who went to the cross, and as he was dying and dealing with the sins of the world, he over here ministering to the thief on the right, forgiving the Roman, the Roman guards, and discipling John and his mom. Evangelizing the thief, discipling the family, John, this is your mom. Take care of her. And forgiving the Romans and dying for our sins. Now you got this right. You, you see how that thing laid out? Now you got to look at Paul and say, what? Paul said, I want that kind of strength. I want to live like that. I want that type of power to be manifested in my life. The Kenyans, the Kenyans, every year during the marathon, ain't nobody running for first place, second and third. They just running for a time. You got to ask yourself, why do the Kenyans win that every year? You got to ask yourself that. Why don't you just do a little research? The Kenyans, they run in Mount Kilimanjaro. Kenya itself as a country is above sea level already. But then when they run in the mountains, they rise above sea level. Then you got to ask yourself, why is that important? Well, when you go and see up above sea level, air gets thinner. The lungs expand further to accommodate for the lack of air. So they're used to training above sea level. So when they come to Boston, they at sea level, they can run 26 miles and walk off like this. Now some Americans said we want to train with them. They say we want to join in and participate. We see they winning every year. We want to know the secret to their madness. The Americans came over there with their GPS trackers, $100 water bottles, $200 shoes. They were laid down. These Kenyans woke up, put their windbreakers on, nothing else. Gym shoes, ready to go. They didn't make it a mile with them boys. And they kept going higher and higher and higher and higher. See, see, what, see what, 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 but the point of the story is they tried to participate because they saw the Kenyans winning. They wanted to be like them. In the same manner, when we watch Christ, we ought to join in with Christ and be trained by Christ so that we can live like Christ. Paul said, I want to live in such a way that you no longer see me at all, but you see Christ dwelling within me. What scripture is that? Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. It's possible that when you say you want to suffer with Christ, Christ is going to tell he's going to take you through some things. Let me tell you this. Every job you get is not for the purpose of you making money. It's not for the purpose of you making money. The job you get is for the purpose of you manifesting God's glory wherever you are. If you're attorney at the law firm or at the county, if you're a policeman at the police station, if you're a teacher at a secular school, at that secular school, if you're a teacher at the private school, private school, if you're a homeschool mom, homeschool mom, it's for the purpose. Every gift God gave you was the purpose of manifesting himself to the whole place, not for you to make money. That's secondary. That's secondary. Remember the power of perspective, right? When you view your job as a means for money, when you do your, view your degree as a means for money, you've got your priorities and perspective jacked up. And I'm going to blame some parents here today. I was doing the same thing, so I'm kicking myself in the stomach too. You need to get your education. You need to get your education. You need to get your education. Well, if your kid here, you need to get your education six days a week, and you need to go to church one day a week, what do you think their priority is going to be? Huh? 
Come on, preacher. Where the priorities going to be? They've picked up from you that education is the key. But the Bible says God is the key. They picked up from you, girl, don't you major in that, you ain't going to be able to get a job. Why would a Christian ever look at job outlook studies on what job they can get 20 years from now? See, y'all looking at, why would you look at that? We serve an omniscient God who knows what the job market is going to look 2 million years from now. Trust him, and he will always make you marketable. Trust him, he will always give you a job someplace. Trust him, and he will always lead you where you can put food on the table for your family. But we read outlooks. You better get into nursing. You better get into teaching. And that's why we got a whole lot of teachers that shouldn't be there. Because they jump to that because, oh, you're going to be good. You're going to find a job. But that's not what they were called to do. Teach your kid to follow Christ first and let God handle the rest. And I'm going to tell you this. Whatever God called you to do, whatever he called you to do, there's going to be some suffering. There's going to be some suffering. It's going to be some mispromotions. It's going to be some days you get fired. It's going to be days that you stand up for Christ. And the next day they be like, we don't need you no more. It's going to be days where you're getting to not getting out with your boss. And you're not going to be able to figure out one reason why. You're not going to be able to figure it out like, man, why they don't like me? Because, <laughs> let me see. Obedience unto God is a sweet savor. To the one is life. And to the other is death. That means whatever environment God puts you in, you're going to have two effects on people. So stop trying to make friends with everybody. You're either going to influence them for the Lord or you're going to push them away. Darkness don't like light. So quit trying to come in an environment and be neutral. God came in to put you in an environment to transform the whole environment for his name. Now let's keep on going. Last one. I want to be raised with him. Three points. I want to know him. I want to suffer and die with him. And I want to be raised with him. Verse 10a says this. He says this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. In order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now this is interesting here. Paul seems like he's saying I want to die and come back again. Like earthly. This statement seems a little bit obscure. Paul is asking him to be raised. Is Paul asking him to be raised bodily from the dead like Jesus? This verse must be read in concert with verse 11. So as we read 11, let's read 11. In order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul saying? Is he talking about I want to die and be rose again like Lazarus? No, what Paul is saying essentially in this verse that I want the resurrection power of God to be manifested in my life. Paul was confident. He was absolutely confident that when he died, he was going to be raised bodily and be with Christ. He's not unsure about that. What he's, what he's talking about is the resurrection power that comes from you being victorious over sin. He says, I want victory over sin. Paul was essentially saying, I want every area of my life to conform to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, I want conformity with the, with the master. I want to die to myself. I want to, I want to live, I want to live in such a way that not one area in my life gets outside of God's will and I'm just cool with that. You understand that? Now see, that's, that's, Paul was insisting, I never want to get comfortable in sin. 
I want God's resurrection power to be manifested in my life. In other words, if I see something that get outside the will of God, I want to deal with it. And then I want to see God's power work through me to have victory over that area. You see what I'm saying? Victory over sin. Now, when you got saved, if you really know him, you got victory over sin. Doctrinally, what we call it. But practically, practically in your everyday, you got to fight that boy every day. You got to fight that boy every day. Not just y'all. Nate, Maceo, Jamal, and us. We got to fight sin every day. And Paul was saying, Lord, set my life up in such a way that your plan for my life schedules events in my life where I have to submit to you, where I have to die to myself, that your resurrection power can be made manifest in my life. I don't want to live no fluffy life where I don't have to change, I don't have to adjust, and I don't have to put my hand over my mouth sometimes. But how's our church today, y'all? Well, you know, my mama was like this. She had a temper like I do. God just going to have to cut me mercy in that area. Y'all heard it before, haven't you? Well, you know, I know cussing ain't right. But sometimes, that's the only way you can say something. That's the only thing my kids understand. What you, what you, what you, you, you saying you got to sin to raise your kid? You can't stick to the text. You can't be consistent. You can't raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord where they learn how to respect you without you having to cuss them out. Well, you know, the tempers run in my family. See, Paul wouldn't have been cool with that. Tempers might run in your family, but that don't give you an excuse to continue to do it. Oh, your father might have left you when you was young. That don't give you an excuse to leave your kids. Your mom might have did all kind of mess to you. That don't give you an excuse to do that to your kids. You might not have no education, no exposure to it, but that don't give you an excuse to live off welfare for the rest of your life. God has given you resurrection power. It's a part of the salvation doctrine. You don't have to live underneath your privilege. Resurrection power. That means ain't no area in your life that you should just become cool with and just sit there and be like, well, I can't change it, so I'm just going to live with it. Paul said, resurrection power says this, I want to be raised with him. He said, I'm not living with that. I desire to be holy like God, and that means me dying to self. That means me giving up to the Lord, and that means putting everything at the altar. And I'll finalize with this personal testimony. Um, I was let go from my job in December. I had to get another job. I got four daughters, my wife, and they like to eat. And so I go out looking for my job, and what the Lord gives me is a job with a 70% pay cut. And the way I left my job, or was let go of my other job, I wasn't in the wrong. I took a donkey kick for the Lord, in my mind. It was my testimony at the place I was at. So here I'm thinking, well, Lord, when you open up a door, you're going to take care of a brother. You see where I'm going with that thing? Don't play me like that. I go to a job, make $8 an hour. I ain't made $8 an hour since I was in college. And that was a side hustle. I'm being trained with people who are high school students, fresh out of high school, and I'm 42. And I'm sitting up here bitter in the training, like, God, I know you didn't play me like this. Heart is heavy ready to walk out, ready to be like, I'm not doing it. But the Lord said, 
your kids got to eat. You may not get the steak that you used to get, but ain't nothing wrong with a little bologna and cheese. Take the crust off the outside, you know, when it bubble up, put it in some bread. You see where I'm going with that thing? I'm struggling, y'all, struggling. Calling my wife. I'm just not feeling this, babe. I'm ready to walk. The Lord gave me a scripture on the way home one day. Give thanks in all things. Don't, that don't help my situation, Lord. Give thanks in all things. So I started thanking God before I wanted to thank God. I started thanking God before God brought the feeling of thanksgiving. I said, I'm going to thank you, Lord. You know I'm not there yet. Thank you for a job. I went there and stayed there, continued to go through training. People were leaving out there, boy, like, man, I ain't working for this kind of money. No benefits, no nothing. People were leaving. I was the only one still standing there, basically. Before I left there, I went from just a high school job. I'm not a program manager in a month and a half. Nah, before you clap. Ain't that much more cheese. But I'm in a position of influence at the job. And look at this here. The preacher preached a message several weeks ago. Bloom where you planted. Right in the stomach. Bloom where you planted. I went back to the job, and I said, two little old Caucasian ladies teaching these mostly hood kids. I'm going to say that again for us to hear. Hood kids. The ladies are 75 years old. We up in this boy's trying to do a fish fry. They walking in like this, teaching these boys. I said, you know what? Can I just help you teach the Bible study? Y'all do the little VBS snack and the, the, the thing. But let me teach. Can I teach? You okay with that? Oh, sure. We just need help. They diligent every Tuesday and Wednesday. They come out there and teach. They play videos for the kids. And I'm like, let's go in another direction. Let me teach them. So I started teaching them. First scripture I went over was John 3.16. Let's go John 3.16. Now, these kids, we don't accept nobody in this place with an IQ over 55. They all got issues. Some of them can't talk, some of them, everything. And I said, for God, and I stopped right there, who is God? God created everything. This the kids talking. He created everything. I said, well, what about this Jesus in here? Well, one kid, Donnie, say, this, 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 the Jesus, he is equal with God. And he came and died. On behalf of my sins. I'm like, whoa. I thought I was going to come here and bless them. <laughs> and God is sitting there throwing us. And then the next week we talked on Adam and Eve. Went on back to Genesis. And the one kid, Terry, who can, you cannot even understand him, his question was this. Why would God put him in the garden if he knew they were going to sin? Theologians wrestle with this question. And this boy who can't talk with an IQ less than 55 say, why would he set up the garden for them to hear? Why would he do that? Then my boy Tyrone Goodnight <laughs> raised his hand with a 55 IQ and he said, so, 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 so that they could trust him. Oh. You understand what I'm saying? And I was worried and bitter three weeks ago, and God raised me up for just such a time as this, and I thought I was going to bless them, and they blessed me. I don't make any more money, y'all. 
I don't understand why God threw me this curveball, but what I do know, God put me there for that reason. And he put me there to see this one thing, this one thing, your job, your job, your job is irrelevant without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit opens the heart. All we got to do is get on the horse and ride it. It's his power. It's his power. I got too high thinking it was me who could do the job. God had to show me, brother man, I don't need you. But what I'm asking you to do, will you join in and fellowship with me? Will you walk with me? Will you join in this plan that I have? I don't need you, so if you, if you go somewhere else, I can replace you. Everybody replaceable, but what I want you to do is walk with me, and if you walk with me, you will do great things. If there are some here today, and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you can't even start the journey. You can't start the journey. And I want to challenge you today. You don't get saved on your mom. You don't get saved with knowing facts about Jesus. You got to be willingly come into intimate fellowship with him. You got to be willing when he say, will you marry me? Say, I will marry you, Jesus. You hear what I'm saying? This ain't no game, y'all. Souls is at stake. If you got a TV and you watching the news right now, he coming back. He coming back. You got to imagine Jesus. All things are happening at the speed I want him to. All things are taking place now. God's people need to wake up. It's souls at stake, y'all. Two old 75-year-old women should not have to teach a class when we got some young Bible students in here, 25, 24, 20, with all that energy to come in and teach these young boys the gospel. But they do it anyway diligently. They're teaching me. So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have never come into relationship with him, today is the day. Could, could, could y'all stand while we do that? I'm sorry. Could, could you play some music for me? If you don't, if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, 